From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Shirley Jodwin, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're going to hear from two renowned photographers who have chosen to showcase different sides of Alberta. That includes environmental photographer of 2016, Sarah Lindstrom, and Edward Brzezinski, famous for his photos of the oil sands. We also discuss Iron and Earth, an organization bridging support for the oil sands and the environment. Thesmia Nishat has that story coming up on Terra Informa. But first, some environmental news headlines from this week. Imagine a giant iceberg, one quarter the size of Wales or the size of the state of Delaware. On the eastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula, such an iceberg is at risk of breaking free of a 350-meter-thick floating ice shelf. If this does in fact occur, it could be among the 10 biggest icebergs ever recorded. According to Professor Adrian Luckman of Swansea University, the fracture process is so complex it is impossible to know when this might happen, which raises another question. What happens when it does? Could it raise ocean levels? Because icebergs float on the water, an enormous piece of ice breaking off will not itself raise ocean levels. But when it breaks off, other ice may slip into the sea in its absence, and those smaller pieces won't float. A major concern is that this iceberg may destabilize the rest of the ice shelf it's breaking off of, but it's too soon to tell if that will be the case. Scientists say they have no evidence that this event is related to climate change as the separation has slowly been occurring over many years. Planet Earth has broken its heat record for the third straight year, making 2016 the warmest year since recording of such data began in 1880. According to science news contributor Thomas Sumner, Two phenomena are to blame, climate change and El Nino. El Nino can be defined as, quote, extended periods when the surface water around the equator in the eastern and central Pacific warms. Scientists declare the arrival of El Nino when water warms by at least 0.4 degrees Celsius or 0.72 degrees Fahrenheit, above average for five or more months in a row. El Ninos can bring heavy rainfall and flooding to the west coast of South America. Meanwhile, Australia and Southeast Asia may face a drought and a high risk of wildfires. In North America, scientists have linked the arrival of El Ninos to unusual weather events, including ice storms, droughts, and mudslides. End quote. 2016 saw eight months that set all-time new highs, with July being the warmest month ever recorded. The statistics for this year's temperature were released on January 18th and provided by scientists from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and NASA. Those were environmental headlines from around the world. If you're just tuning in, my name is Shelley and you're listening to Terra Informa. If support for the oil sands and support for the environment were concentric circles, Iron and Earth is an organization that is occupying the apparent no-man's land in between. But Iron and Earth's position is that the two aren't mutually exclusive. Thusmia Nishat speaks with Kerry Oxford about how the organization aims to bridge the gap.
So when was the need for this organization recognized? How did it get started? Uh, it got started uh, in in a, in a real way just this year. In fact, it was only launched uh, this past winter. Uh, and the, the need arose whenever oil and gas workers began to realize, and, and this was actually started in Fort McMurray, began to realize that uh, – the roller coaster ride of of the oil and gas industry was tough on them and on their families, and uh, that they wanted to have other options, as well as options that met with uh, their own feelings, our own feelings uh, about uh, the environment and about the future. Uh, so really, it, it was it was a focus on how do we do better in our own lives, how do we do better for our province economically and um, in terms of environment, and, and how do we do this without leaving anybody behind, without shutting things down and running away and, 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 uh, and damaging our economy and our futures. Do you want to talk about its mandate? Certainly. Uh, Iron and Earth has, has a, a couple of mandates. The, the first one, the, the primary reason that we got started, is to uh, prepare oil and gas workers for uh, growth in the renewable energy industry to prepare us so that we can work in that industry and uh, and be useful to the companies that are coming into Alberta and, of course, the rest of Canada. The second mandate is to um, work and collaborate with other stakeholders that are, that are related to renewables, including uh, local and federal governments, uh, educators, um, unions, uh, employers, and other organizations that uh, might be able to help us with our original mandate and also to help us push forward the Workers' Climate Plan, which is a document we submitted to the federal government a few months ago. It was created from the feedback from a, a survey that we sent out to our members. Uh, and it, it highlights uh, the, the plight and the the reality of oil and gas workers in Alberta, uh, the struggles that we've faced with regards to the economy, but also um, how much we've enjoyed the work that we've done and how we see a better way ahead. Uh, and there's a number of suggestions for uh, programs, for initiatives, and so on and so forth uh, in there. Uh, what, what this sort of side point to this is that we really do want to change the conversation that's happening uh, in Alberta and across the country with regards to oil and gas and renewables as if they're two mutually exclusive things. And and the idea that oil and gas workers don't care about the environment, those are two conversations, two sort of um, narratives that that really aren't accurate. Uh, so we want the message to come across in this workers' climate plan that we want change to happen, that here's the solution for it, and uh, and that it doesn't have to mean that uh, that we kill the economy as we have it, or, or even even as it's struggling now, or or um, or shut down the oil stands or anything like that, but that we can actually do both. We can become a leader in renewables without first shutting down all this other stuff. Uh, and we're looking at the renewable side of it. We we want to want to grow that and. Uh, and work with companies that are looking to make that happen. And the government needs to help that too. So part of that's going to be um, helping provide the regulatory framework, for example, for um, metering for uh, for people who want to have solar so that they can reverse meter and sell uh, power back to the grid, or uh, a framework that allows for the, the creation of geothermal energy production, which actually doesn't exist in Canada. Mm. How do you go about... Um training workers for a renewable energy future? Well, right now, we are um, in the process of 
uh, of implementing a program called the Solar Skills Campaign. Uh, we're working with local stakeholders uh, such as Gridworks in Edmonton that uh, trains electricians who work in the oil and gas industry uh, in five days to become solar installers. Uh, so this gives these these individuals an opportunity to to transition into the renewable industry uh, in uh, a rapid way and in a way that brings them online as useful right away. Uh, we're hoping to do that with other uh, other trades as well. There's a, p- a possibility of working with Cangia, the Canadian. Um, let me see if I get this right. Geothermal Energy Association uh, on uh, projects to um, retrofit orphan gas wells for geothermal energy production, and there are trades that work on wells that we could uh, potentially retrain to do that kind of work. And that's just a couple of examples of things that we'd like to do. Um, Not all of it is at the same level or at the same progression as the solar skills campaign. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? (laughs) We would really like to get the word out there that we... um, we want everybody to hear about us. Uh, just visit our website and we will provide information. Anybody who's interested in supporting us through our funding campaigns, we'd be happy to hear from you as well. Thank you for your time and for speaking with us. Awesome. Thanks very much. That was Thesmia Nishat speaking with Carrie Oxford of Iron and Earth. Our next story is about photos that speak for themselves. Canadian photographer Edward Bertinsky has photographed extreme landscapes made by humans. Abandoned marble quarries, mountains of e-waste, never-ending freeways. Rather than putting any judgment on the people who created those landscapes, he tends to let his photographs speak for themselves. Terra Informa's Trevor Chow Fraser works at the University of Alberta's Office of Sustainability and helped bring Edward Bertinsky to Edmonton for International Week in January 2014. That's how Chris Chang and Phillips got a chance to speak to the photographer about his approach. What were the first photographs you took that you knew were really showing something new and unexpected about how humans are changing the landscapes that we're part of? Well, I think uh, it really began in the early 80s, like 81, kind of abstract expressionism as my kind of point of departure. So I was kind of going in and photographing, you know, just crazy brambles and, you know, brush and and just but in the pristine landscape that's what i was kind of working on and then discovered you know in a couple in, in, in some of my travels that i've always was attracted just naturally to photographing these kinds of man altered landscapes and and then you know and i never thought of them as possibly being um subjects for the camera i just never thought well you know would anybody ever be interested in these kinds of places but then a bigger idea took hold in my in my mind is that well ultimately these are actually more interesting landscapes than the ones that are the pristine. That 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 world has kind of been digested. It's it, even though I'm trying to find another angle on it, another way to describe it, it but it's already kind of been done um, in some ways. And um, and to kind of pursue that um, just seemed to be. Um, a kind of a yearning for the past, a yearning for a nostalgia. Maybe because it's so uh, contemporary and it feels so much like journalism, um, a lot of people often 
ask you to say something explicitly about what you think that it means. So why did you decide not to present those photographs as explicit praise or condemnation of what you were seeing? You know, it's too it's too complex an issue to say right or wrong. Um, it, you know, everybody wants that. You know, you know, point out the baddies and and aren't we all good? Well, we're all implied. We all we've all sat in jets. We all sat on buses or cars and bikes and 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 you know, and our chairs that are made of steel and whatever. We're you know, the springs in our bed are made of you know steel. Everywhere we look. You know our fridge, or so. You know, our, our, is what you're saying is that we shouldn't do that. And if you're saying that, then what does that mean? You know, and uh, and if you have trouble with a big quarry or a big place where we get aggregate from and sand and whatever to build our cities, and the, you know, and if you have trouble with oil, which you you know move around on, or if you have trouble with you know blacktop that we drive on, uh, you know, in terms of tar. You know, then, then if you have trouble with the landscapes and what's happening in the landscape, then you should have as much trouble with a city that you live in and your whole life, basically. Because, you know, if you, you know, like I say, if you hate the quarries and if you hate, what, you know, or if you what, what it represents or the or, or the you know, aggregate areas, then you should turn towards our city and find the same and have the same response because mm-hmm. you can't have one without the other. They're 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 an equivalency, but we tend to think that. You know, one is negative and the city is positive. Uh, we can tend to think of, no one thinks of uh, food as a negative, but you know, the creation of food has now you know tipped us over in, ter- in terms of nitrates going into the water tables and and, and screwing up you know uh, a lot of the water that's out there today. Uh, you know, whether it's you know you know freshwater rivers or deltas. So we've got you know that kind of thing plus. If you look at what's changed the surface of the planet more than anything, what's de- what's destroyed more forests more than anything, or more prairies more than anything, or even what's you know how do how have we terraformed deserts like in California? Uh, it's farming, and so farming is the the single largest destructive uh, activity that we do as as humans. But we tend not to think of a, a farm as a destructive a force on the planet of a, of a, of a transition of a existing habitat and an ecosystem to something that just provides calories. But but we've done that in a huge scale. So so I, I just think that 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 thinking of it in binary right or wrong is is not is not treating the subject with the complexity it deserves. Hmm. Uh, I'm curious, how important is it to manage your reputation for being? balanced like this, how important is it to manage that reputation so that you can continue to get access to these interesting places that you photograph abandoned quarries and shipbreaking yards and huge textile factories? How much of that is an artistic choice and how much of that is strategic in being able to get back in a second time? Well, I mean, philosophically, I, I still stand by what I just finished saying, but um, and I, but I think in terms of what you're saying, if I if I came out as a card-carrying environmentalist, Greenpeace kind of, uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm looking for the bad guys and I'm going to take you down. Um, yeah, I want to take you down. Uh, th- that would probably not bode well, you know, for shooting in sensitive places like China, uh, you know, or or wherever I want to go. It's it, it, it would be it would be difficult, I think, for anybody to get the kind of unbridled access that I get if you were. Uh, overt activist and uh, you 
a Bill McGibbon standing in front of the pipeline, so to speak. Yeah, that wouldn't work to, to do what I'm doing and to be that. And, and not not that I've actually, you know, it's my ambition to be an activist. It's my my ambition is interesting to make interesting art and to make stuff that 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 has a lasting value, um, and and has interesting ideas embedded in it. And that has the capacity, possibly, to even you know raise one's consciousness around the things around our world and what we're doing to it and how we're doing it. I mean, that's to me a more it's an interesting, you know, ambition. Um, but uh, you know, I don't necessarily feel that you know it, it, it would help what I'm doing to become an activist. Although sometimes I get so angry with some of the things I do see that I want to you know scream at the people who are doing it but um you know it it does it, it, it just i don't think it'll help right now i think i'm what i'm doing is is is, is has a better long term i think outcome because it'll leave a a large record of of the the, the things that we've done through through these decades to provide for ever growing population of humans which is past the 7 billion mark which is quite um a lot of people That was Chris Changian Phillips with photographer Edward Bertinsky. Our final story here on Terra Informa is about another renowned photographer and her adventures. Raised in Sweden, Sarah Lindstrom is a globe-trotting photographer who won the 2016 Atkins Chuem Environmental Photographer of the Year Award with a photo of a wildfire in the southern Alberta Rocky Mountains. Terra former Shelley Jodwin speaks with Sarah about the winning shot and her goal of using her impressive talent in photography to inspire people to take care of the earth. We at Terra Informa first heard about you a few months ago when you won the Atkins Chiwem Environmental Photographer of the Year uh, for 2016. So from the Guardian website, the award is based on, quote, an annual international showcase for thought-provoking photography and video that tackles a wide range of environmental themes. A shortlist of 60 images has also been chosen from more than 10,000 entries for an exhibition that will run at the Royal Geographical Society in London, from the 29th of June to the 22nd of August, 2016. Quote, that's a huge accomplishment and congratulations. Can you describe the winning photo for us and what elements came together to make it such a spectacular shot? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you very much. So the photo is from this wildfire in Banff National Park. Um, I was traveling up north along the Icebrook Parkway, kind of uh, you know, sleeping in my car and like stopped everywhere, just like facing the light. Um, and I heard rumors about a fire up north, but I didn't really pay too much attention to it. And the next day, when I traveled further north, I just remember coming across this big corner on the road, and I see this massive, like, pinkish um, smoke plume rising towards the sky. And, yeah, I just keep on driving because I'm so curious. Like, the road goes straight towards it until you get to this bridge that crosses the river. And I just had to stop the car <laughs> because I was so hypnotized by what I've seen. And I managed to climb this little hill um, where I'm standing, just like kind of looking down at everything. So the photo is just like, you see the river in the foreground, and then there are the trees, and it's like this, it's kind of like this, the base of the smoke plume. Uh, it's a panorama photo. Then you see this little helicopter. It looks so tiny in the photo, but it gives some perspective. And it's just flying around, like dumping water on the plane. Wow, that's, uh, that's a pretty incredible recollection. I feel like wildfires are such a 
a common sight for us in Alberta. Um, yeah. I, I'm not sure I ever take enough time to have a, a good look at them. Um, but it's it's pretty amazing to just kind of come upon it like that and in all of its majesty. Actually, I think most people would just choose to like drive as far away as possible, but I'm just very curious. Your website says that you picked up the basics of photography while studying in South Africa in 2010. You've clearly come a long way. Can you talk a bit about what the basics were that you learned and how you finessed those basics into the very impressive talent that you're being celebrated for this year. I did this exchange semester in South Africa um, in 2010, and I was studying geography and environmental studies, so I mostly took took classes on that, but by the end, I had some credits left over, and I saw that I had this introduction course to photography, and I just got my first DSLR camera. I mean, it was really really just the basics, like how you use the shutter speed and aperture and, uh, yeah, how to use a DSLR camera. Um, and then since, since that, I've just been, you know, out traveling and always with my camera. Um, and photography is something you really learn by doing. Photography is something that, I mean, you never complete. So you've talked a bit about uh, some of your travels, um, and you seem to really couple your passion for photography with passion for traveling. Uh, according to your website, you grew up in northern Sweden. So have you done a lot of photography in those familiar places um, that might be home to you? And is that a bit different than photographing places that you've never been before? I haven't taken as much photos from around home as I should have, I think. Um, partly because I'm not home very often, like since I started doing photography professionally and like really since I had a good camera. I haven't spent that much time at home, but it's, I mean, you get blind because <laughs> you don't really see these, these things the same way you do it when you're traveling. But I'm trying. Like, I, I took a few photos of the Northern Lights at home that were pretty, pretty cool. But it's definitely something I want to explore more because there's lots, lots of beauty up, especially up north, like when you have the mountains. Can you talk about some of your favorite photos and, and the stories behind them? Do you, do you have a favorite? One that comes to my mind when you ask is that this is one photo of my friend Emma reclaim, climbing in, in Lake Louise, called like the back of the lake. Yeah, there's some great great climbing back there. And there's this one shot of uh, where, yeah, my friend Emma is just climbing and I'm kind of like hanging down another rope. You can't see that, but um, yeah, that's <laughs> how we set it up. And uh, yeah, she's like dressed in bright orange. And then you got this the contrast super blue glacial lake and just like the greenery from you know around do you have a preference for um for photographing people versus places i think what i like the most is to photograph people in places and <laughs> as i said like especially people in the two elements like for example yeah out climbing um i love that kind of photography or just out featuring or on your website, you talk about wanting to use your photography to encourage your audience to go out and explore the great outdoors and inspire people to care about our beautiful planet. Um, can you talk a bit about that and why you think it's important for people to explore the great outdoors? By starting to get out there and be in nature, it just really made me appreciate it so much more. Like sports, like climbing and kayaking and just like spending lots of time out there. Just by seeing the beauty that's there, you, you appreciate it more and you, it makes you want to take care of it. Yeah, most of my friends with the same interest, they, they're all like really aware and uh, 
wants to protect it. And you know, it's interesting to think about that connection between people and the outdoors, and uh, and what kind of really inspires that connection. And I think for a lot of people, it really is just getting out there and enjoying yourself in it. Yeah. Um, but there's always, you know, there are always reasons why people can't or don't get out yeah. into it. You know, having a beautiful photo of somewhere wonderful and lush, is it certainly kind of keeps me going during the day and wanting to find those places on the weekend. So yeah. th- thanks for doing what you do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so your portfolio contains beautiful photos of people uh, partaking in canoeing and rock climbing and hiking and tons and tons of other activities. Um, what's your favorite way to explore an adventure in the wild? Um, I think rock climbing is one of them for sure. Um, especially when you go multi-pitch climbing, I've been like, going really high. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I did this climb a few days ago, just 500 meters up, and uh, yeah, you spend all day on this rock and like so many other people there, and uh, yeah, I appreciate that the most when you feel like you're you're alone and kind of lost in the wild. So, what's the most remote place you think you've ever been? Canoeing in the the Amazon. Like, we didn't really go far when you look at the map, but it felt like we traveled for ages. <laughs> um, so just the outskirts, but, I mean, it's, it's wild out there. Are there any other stories that you'd like to share with us? I remember this one time when I was, it was also in South Africa. I was uh, hiking along something called the Wild Coast, and it's really the Wild Coast. It's beautiful. And I was on my own... Um, yeah, with my camera, of course, like taking photos and the light was really beautiful. Um, and there was this one section where I had to uh, kind of climb some cliffs right uh, above the ocean. And I was like, yeah, it was fairly, just like some, some scrambling and I was crossing and continued hiking. But then, yeah, it was getting later, so I was like, okay, I better turn around at some point. And uh, then it might be like a couple of hours later. And, when I come to this section again where I had to, you know, scramble the cliff, just that the ocean was, like, way higher and had this massive wave just crashing <laughs> um, to the, the cliff. And I was just looking at it and kind of freaking out, like, shit, I, I, that's the way, like, that's, that's the only way <laughs> um, I, had to get, I had to get past. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how I made it, but I guess I just went higher and uh, <laughs> trying not to look down because I knew I would just get crushed if I, if I fell down. And, uh, yeah, that was maybe. That's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty intense, but I, I did get some nice photos. So. <laughs> you, <laughs> was, it, was it worth the photo? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was an adventure. Um, <laughs> sorry to tell. <laughs> so, um, yeah, overall, I mean... Not any like super amazing, but yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, just going to, <laughs> just going to that kind of length. I feel like something like that might might definitely turn me around if I was alone. Yeah, like normal people would, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not like normal people, I guess. 
That was me, Shelley Jodwin, speaking with 2016 Environmental Photographer of the Year, Sarah Lindstrom. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Have you ever wanted to be on the radio or considered doing your own podcast? Terrainforma is recruiting, so if you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, which is located on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Thanks this week to our contributors, Thesmi Nishat for the Iron and Earth story, Chris Chengyan Phillips, who spoke with Edward Bertinsky, and Shelley Jodwin, who spoke with Sarah Lindstrom. Thanks also to our dedicated volunteers, Terra Informers Dylan Hall for headlines, Charlie Blaze for choosing the archive, Carter Grozitza for doing website and social media, and Amanda Rooney for production. My name is Shelley Jodwin, and I hope you've enjoyed the past half hour of environmental news. I'll catch you next week on Terra Informer. <laughs>